He's all right. He's all right. He's locked in the cage at the minute. He's great. The cage sounds like evil, but it's a great. Because basically I took him out after his breakfast to go for a shit and he didn't do it. So uh, I have to lock him in. Otherwise, his room is full of shit. So, uh, oh, my right. God. So lovely. <laughs> so he, has to, he has to go in the crate until we're finished. Well, thank you for that lovely image. Absolutely. <laughs> you did ask. That's Freddie Watch. That's, that's beautiful. Chris. It's very, I feel quite Christmassy now. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really nice. Absolutely. Mr. Hanky. Wow. Well, listen, I'm Asan, and this might be okay. We've made it to the dizzy heights of episode six. And in honor of that, Debs raided her Rolodex and landed a very special guest. But before we get to him, you just heard Leon there. Morning, Leon. How are you doing? We know how Freddie's doing, but how are you doing, mate? I'm good, actually. As I said offline, I'm, uh, I forgot what it's like putting a film together, and uh, it's pretty stressful. So um... I find that hilarious that you needed to remind yourself that putting a feature film together and financing it is a bit stressful. <laughs> it's a lot of moving parts. <laughs> Juggling and plate spinning, whatever you want to say. But yeah, no, it's good. And it's good to actually have something um, live before Christmas. But until you're on set that first day, it's never live, is it? No, no, it ain't final till it's vinyl, as Roddy McKenna once said. Debs, you remember Roddy McKenna? I do, yeah. Morning, Debs. Morning, A-San. Yes, Roddy McKenna and Ain't Final Till It's Final. How are you doing, Dash? I'm good, thanks. I've had another busy week. I uh, yeah. managed to get to an actual physical screening of a film in a, a real-life screening room. Wow. Um, which was really exciting. Not many people showed up, but to be expected. But yeah, that was that was the highlight. And then I did an online screening, which uh, was quite fancy. And then a Q&A. So yeah, and a bit of work in between all that. But, yeah, it's been a good one. Good one. It's Excellent. Was, uh, it feels like it's been productive. Excellent. And do you want to introduce your special guest, or should I? You should. I'm very <laughs> excited. We're all a bit excited. <laughs> Good morning. We are very, very delighted to have documentarian and filmmaker, Mr. Matt Whitecross. Morning, Matt. Morning, guys. How you doing? Very good. How are you, sir? I'm really good. I'm really good. The sun's shining, and it's the first day I've not been specifically at work finishing something so i'm 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 good i'm looking out the windows it's very nice Life excellent good. where are you based i'm in muswell hill okay. north london nice very nice very nice and ju- about a mile away from where i'm sitting looking at the same sun <laughs> ah so it's sunny in london today that's yeah. that's definitely good to know it's how's your sunny in london give over <laughs> <laughs> if only. we should point out matt that asan's in ibiza right now so Oh, you're joking? Nope. Well, you you can sod off. That's, that. <laughs> That's pretty much yeah, been everybody's it's... reaction. <laughs> no, I mean, it's no, it's very nice actually out here. It can't be that different, can it? Is it? Tell me it's freezing in Ibiza and it's snowing or something. It's sunny and it's quite warm. Oh, oh balls. I went, right, I went having a great time. You win. Time. Come on. <laughs> I'm having a great time. No, it's true. It's true. Uh, listen, <laughs> Matt, how, how was, uh, before we dive into the kind of, uh, the nuts and bolts of this podcast. I'm interested. How has your year been, like work-wise, just with it being a, such a weird COVID year? Um, have you got more done or less done? I've I've got well somewhere in between, really, in the sense that um, I was incredibly lucky because we were halfway through a project okay. uh, that we'd, we'd done nearly all the filming for. 
So it was actually, so it was just a question of editing. So in that sense, you know, I mean, I'm, I feel it's weird because when you get asked that question, you have to be, obviously you have to be a little bit careful because a lot of people are going through a very hard time right now. So I can't say I've had, I'm having a good time, but I'm having a really good time. Mm. <laughs> yes. But I feel I can say that because I'm, I'm married to a doctor who's like in a COVID ward doing all that stuff. So I feel like it's, that's all right. We're kind of, you know, wow. the family in general are doing their bit, but I'm not. But I'm having a really nice time because I'm, I'm kind of at home, so I'm getting to do all the kids' stuff uh, for the most part. I'm taking them to school every morning, picking them up, putting them to bed in a way that I normally can't do, not to the same extent. Mm. But then I'm editing during the day and then carrying on editing at night and so on. So it's been, I've had a really nice time. And then we're starting up on another project and doing the usual juggling 20 different things. So, I, but it's, that's been good. The childcare now has settled down now that back at school. Initially, it was like just completely stopped work. But in a quite quite a healthy way for me, because it was just like each deadline that I sit there normally panicking over and freaking out. It was just like, well, we just can't do them. We're just going to have to keep going. And because everyone was in the same boat, it was all right. It wasn't like anyone went, what do you mean, COVID? What's that? Yeah. Everyone, you know, even because we're working with an American production company and American um, uh, financiers, they, they're they in the same boat. So they were just like, okay, we'll just finish it when you can finish it. So it was, it was good. The only thing is sometimes you... That momentum that you get on a project where you like, you know, you could carry on working or I could carry on working on any project for the next 20 years. Like you're never finished on it yeah. until, until someone says you're finished. But if no one's saying you're finished, it's quite hard to kind of keep up the same, the same rhythm, the same momentum. But yeah, other than that, it's, it's been good. It's been really good. Do you feel guilty about the fact that you've had a good year? Because I do, I have to say like very quickly, like I've, I've had a similar year in the sense that it's probably been somehow professionally... I've ended up getting more done because of COVID and I felt as though it was easier to um, have the attention of producers, development executives, all that sort of business. Um, So weirdly, it's been a good year, but as I come to the end of it, I almost feel guilty saying that, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, completely, completely. And also you just need to be careful who you're speaking to because some people Mm. have been through really tough times it could be work it could be personal tragedy they might be got sick themselves all these things so you i've never say oh i'm still having a great time in that sense and obviously it's also i'm aware so i'm married into a family of doctors so my wife's a doctor all her i'm like the old one out i'm the only filmmaker everyone else is a doctor including mum you know kind of mum dads everyone grandparents and so they're going out and doing these you know going out and, and into this world the kind of covid world and having to expose themselves to that and there's all, all those kind of things so like i'm aware of it's not like my head's buried in the sand or i'm not in, like embracing any weird conspiracy theories about is a hoax or anything like that i know how horrific it is mm. but in terms of a personal experience of it I, it's been my favorite things in the world are my family and work and i'm getting that's what i'm doing now every other bit of it is has been phased out so all yeah the, all the things that you normally do where you have to go to a lot of meetings and you've got to kind of drum up cash or, you know, even just hanging out with friends. I really miss my friends and I've not been amazing at keeping in touch with them. But somehow all that, all the kind of the noise has disappeared and it's just those two things. Yeah. Which for me is, which I've, I've enjoyed. But yeah, you could be, you could be careful because it's, it's definitely not, it's obviously not a universal experience. And I think, and I think that the knock on effects from it aren't even being, that we won't know about them for, for months and, and years to come. You know, I think so my wife's a psychiatrist. And the mental repercussions are, are going to be enormous, you know, aside from the economic ones. So it's, no, it's a, it's a horrible time for most people, I think. 
Mm. So I feel very lucky in that sense. Absolutely. I think that's the thing. You've got to count your blessings. Um, hey, listen, what are you what what are you working on? What are the, the two most recent projects that you've uh, that you've worked on? Well, we've been doing so I I never know whether why whether I'm allowed to talk about things or not, but but we're doing a fair, a project, a boxing documentary, which is unusual for me because I don't know anything about sport. And I'm not that interested, to be honest. And I'm not, uh, and I certainly don't know. It's a bo- you know, boxing is not something that I knew much about. Mm. I knew, like everyone on the planet, I know quite a lot about Muhammad Ali. I'd read a few books on him. I've seen documentaries on him. And same with Mike Tyson. But there's a, there are big, big gaps in my knowledge. And there was this 10-year gap, more or less, between the two of them, where Ali disappeared. And then Mike Tyson came in. And... These other guys, the middleweights, the lighter weights took over. And it's really about that period. But wow. it's kind of the way that it was sold to me originally was it's not, it's not really about, I don't know if they were just doing this to pull the wool over my eyes going, well, I know you're not, you're not a bo- you're not into the kind of boxing fanatic. So it's not really about that. It's about the politics and about the social backdrop in the way that, I suppose in the way that, you know, I mean, this is a very high ambition, but the way that OJ Made in America did so so beautifully mm. that it was about O.J. Simpson. Of course, it was, but it was really about America during that time, about what made that crazy moment in time happen. Absolutely. Have That's you seen? It. Have you seen? Um, That's the ambition. The Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. I have. Yes. Well, I haven't. Do you know? I haven't finished it. I started watching it and then work kind of took over. But I was. Yeah, I was really enjoying it. It's really good. It's really, really, it's really good. good. It's one of the. It's similar to the uh, to the O.J. one in that sense that it really. Feels like it, it 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 caught two moments in time really well, just like era moments in the states, not just from a sporting point of view, but socially, um, socially as well. Um, Debs, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, no, I think that was really interesting. What Matt just said about not being interested too much in sport and boxing, because I was gonna, I was gonna kick off by asking you, Matt, how you choose your projects you know what draws you to them and i'm because i i feel like it's a you know there must be a personal interest to kind of tackle some of the films that you've made and you did mention that the boxing films got social issues uh and so i just uh yeah uh what draws you to projects i it's it's funny because it's different every single time i mean i i think it's when you know looking back at some of the stuff that i've done um, I think I'm really interested in, in a variety, in variety. So in kind of every time I finish one thing, I want to try and do something a little bit different next time. But in terms of how you pick them, it's quite it's so chaotic because I have I've got a production company, Mint Pictures, with uh, my producer Fiona Nielsen, and we have a slate of projects that we're constantly trying to develop. But often those ones aren't ready, or we can't finance them, or and then things come along. So the boxing thing, for example, so. We did, did this Oasis documentary a few years ago, uh, Supersonic. And when we were doing that, so I got approached to do that by Asa Kapadia and James K. Reese's company um, on the corner. So we did that with them. And they came back a bunch of times and obviously just done Maradona. But they were doing more sporting stuff. And they had like a, they had the Formula One thing that they're doing now and a few other th- projects that we talked about. And it, every single time I was a bit like... It's just not, you know, I've got all my other things that I'm trying to do. I was trying to do going back into dramas. And each time I was like, yeah, it's just not really right for me. Like, this is clearly the access they had to whatever sporting event was unbelievable, unprecedented. But it just didn't really speak to me. Mm. And I've got this slightly passive aggressive female from James, who's a lovely man. <laughs> basically saying, well, I know you're not into sport and you don't want to work with it. But 
But there's this thing about these boxers in the 80s and that, that suddenly clicked for me and it was partly him saying, don't worry, it's not about just the sport, it's really about the backdrop and, and partly because I wanted to work with them again. So that was, but yeah, it's different every single time. So I've got all these unrealized projects along the way that you don't end up doing for different reasons. And I'm trying to think, like it's it's probably about 50-50, the ones that you really plan and you're, you've got your heart set on and then something just lands in your lap. And then, and that, and what I used to love about films and filmmaking was that chaotic side to it. Once you've got a family, that bit gets less attractive because suddenly the idea of someone ringing up and saying, oh, by the way, can you come to Russia for two years tomorrow morning? <laughs> it's like in the past, it was like, wow, that's amazing. This is like what I dreamed about. But if, yeah, it's not, it's hard to break that news to, to your wife and kids. Yeah. Yeah, I can well imagine. Hey, listen, um, the thing that I've, that fascinates me about you is that, you know, you've made some really serious, heavy documentaries, really impressive ones. And then on the other side, you've done the Coldplay documentary, the Oasis documentary. I'm not saying that they're not serious or impressive, but you, I'm interested in how you, like, what, what do you like, for example, about doing doing a Coldplay film or an Oasis film, which is different from doing the social documentaries that you do? Well, it was, you know, growing up, so my parents were political refugees from Argentina. So they were, well, so my dad was British. Okay. He had met someone in Argentina and married, uh, married my mum uh, and they had settled down there in the 70s and were very, like, expecting to have a family there, stay there forever. And then the, the dictatorship came in, people got rounded up. They were not particularly politically active, but they were looking after, they hid people in their flat, um, refugees from Chile. Wow. So there, was, there were a succession of different dictatorships going on. So, and they managed to, they were imprisoned, they were there for six months, and then they were very, very lucky because there was a big campaign by Amnesty and Reuters over here, and people mentioned them in Parliament and stuff and embarrassed the Argentine government into letting them out. So I'm, I'm very, I was always very aware and they made me very aware growing up of like how lucky we were and how, you know, how politics is, is you know, we, I think often people think politics in this country is Westminster, whereas actually politics is, is all our lives all the time. Yeah. And, I, and, you know, that's partly the thing with this boxing doc is like, well, actually, it's all one story. You don't differentiate some, what someone does from the way that they're, you know, they, where they live and how they live. So I, so I was, we used to grow up with politics being something we just discussed at the dinner table. And so I, so it was always some. I kind of assumed, I mean, the films I loved growing up were very eclectic. I loved quite serious, you know, documentaries and dramas, but then I, I love, I, you know, I'll go and see a Marvel film or a you know, superhero film or whatever. I'm, I'm happy to watch anything and everything. I think, again, it's the variety. So I, but I assumed I would get into kind of heavier stuff and that's what appealed to me. And yeah, I, I managed, I was unbelievably lucky that my favourite British filmmaker was is Michael still is Michael Winterbottom and I tried to get an interview with him, uh, with him when I was a student and I couldn't get hold of him and then a job what was going at his production company it was the first job I ever got in film and mm. I managed to get my foot under the door there so I assumed that was the kind of thing but what I like about him again and people like Soderbergh and Greengrass and so on is that they they seem to in the way that I guess uh, directors from the forties and fifties used to do where you'd be doing a Western one month and then you'd be doing a sci-fi film the next day and then a gangster film, you know, that sort of thing. So I, that, I think it just keeps you... I know there's certain directors who, are, who you know, like you might have a look at uh, like a, a Woody Allen or a, 
who are you know people who seem to make the same kind of film again and again and again. Yeah. But I always, for me, it always appealed, really appealed to me to just to hop between different things. So I, so at that in that sense, even though I kind of gravitate often towards the the heavier stuff, then I just I enjoyed the variety of it. And it's and the reality is I I had you know I had a film that I wrote um, as my first film supposedly was going to be about a bombing that happened in London, like a fictional bombing. This is before the actual London bombings. There was a kind of, I suppose it was like kind of Magnolia or 21 Gramsy thing of all these different stories that all joined together, connected by this terrible thing that happened. Yeah. I couldn't get it financed. No one's interested. And then I wrote a film about the Iraq war uh, and everyone was like, no, not interested. It's too soon. It's too soon. And then suddenly it was too late. Everyone's like, no, 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 we don't want to do that anymore. It's like, it must have been like a window of opportunity where it was the right weekend to make that film. So it was, <laughs> so it's just hard, you know, I think those films are very hard to finance. Definitely. Also, it wasn't like I, that was all I ever wanted to do. I think there's, you know, I think you know what it's like with films are very expensive. Even, even low budget films are, are normally very expensive. And so you've got to try and you've got to be fair to the people who are financing it. And they're looking for some security, I guess, and safety. So I think if you can say to people, well, look, this band is well known, then they're like, okay, well, I can see there's an audience for that, or it's going to be exciting for these reasons. So I think it's, I think, I think, I feel like it's harder now to make those, you know, kind of more challenging films than it was as films. Definitely. They, they gravitate towards TV now. It's just like, it's like, you know, when we made the uh, Road to Guantanamo, I was like, are, are we just preaching to the conversity? Because it shows in the cinema, you've got to really want to go walk through that door and pay 10 quid. Whereas if it's on TV, you might be channel hopping and you'll find stuff and that you've got more likelihood of connecting with people who might might want to you might want to connect with and who might disagree with you but might be convinced by what you need you want to say so it's a tricky one but yeah I think I think things have changed but I, I just like changing things so I so we did we shot two music videos last week just for fun uh for no you know for zero money and <laughs> socially and, and distance as well <laughs> socially distance yeah and then, and then with the and then the documentaries you know I've been trying to get back into drama a few times and you know like my agent could Obviously, like like for a lot of directors, could get me a drama gig pretty quickly, hopefully, but not necessarily something that I've developed and, and really feel passionate about. So then it's like, well, it's got to be the right kind of thing. So we've had projects we've been developing, one for like 10 years, but couldn't get any traction on it, and another one for uh, like four years, maybe. And again, it looked very close about a year ago and then didn't happen. So Film or TV projects? It. A mixture, and to be honest, at this stage, I kind of feel like I don't, I don't really mind. You know, I, so like one project we were really keen on doing was a, a film about Brian Epstein and the Beatles, mm-hmm. and we wrote it as a film. But it would, you know, it's, his life is vast and what they accomplished in those years. So if someone wanted to do it as a four-part TV series, it, it, we could do that as well. So I, I don't mind. I feel like, in a lot of ways, obviously, TV is getting more interesting than mainstream films right now and it has access to an audience that otherwise they probably wouldn't think of going to see a, uh, that kind of uh, subject matter it was on a big screen i've got like yeah, lots of my friends you know like my friends are all smart people it's not like they're luddites and philistines but they tend now to go to see big hollywood blockbusters at the cinema and watch more challenging stuff at home and that's just the way it is and there's no point in sitting there and screaming into the wind about how that's not right it's like that's how it is at the moment and so absolutely you, you have to gravitate to where people are i guess yeah no definitely i think that the point that you made earlier about how you know you are preaching to the co- converted if you're if you're making a film like road to guantanamo and putting it in the cinema whereas 
on television or on a streaming platform, you're more likely to end up with at least some parts of the audience that w- wouldn't necessarily go to a cinema to see it or, or pay for it. And those are the people that you're so, certainly socially conscious films. Those, those are the people that you're, uh, that you're aiming for. Um, hey, can I ask you a light question? Who was, who, who did you, uh, when you did the Oasis and the Coldplay documentaries, which, which band was more fun to dive through their archives? So when you were going through the videos, the pictures, the note, you know, you're interviewing people, which one was more fun to, to put together? It's really, it's really tough that question because it was, well, first of all, it's just, I, you know, you basically get to be nosy in documentary in a way that would be completely socially unacceptable in any context. It's like, Definitely. you basically get to go through people's bins <laughs> and like dirty laundry and really find out about them in a way that they, you know, they don't even, they couldn't even begin to think about themselves. So, for example, I mean, so in the case of, they're very, they're quite different because I, we had so so much in, on Coldplay, like, and a lot of which I'd shot, a lot of which other people had shot. Like Miller, who's re- effectively, I guess now, uh, the band documentarian that he 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 travels with the band and does their sound, mm. but he also films. He's like a really brilliant filmmaker, and he films them constantly. So he's been there all the way through. So there was a ton of stuff that he just filmed everything and. 50% of the time, nothing interesting's happening. Like most of our lives, it's just like, oh, here's someone sat at a keyboard and just twinkling around and here's someone plugging in a monitor or whatever. And then the rest of the time, it's like, it's gold. So that was, it was really exciting because you're watching, you literally, you just had, it's almost like having CCTV coverage of the band for 20 years. So that, and, and also there's a lot of stuff where I'd come into the office and the archive team would all be laughing and watching stuff. Oh, this stuff is amazing. Who shot this? And like, oh, you did. You've <laughs> obviously got some form of dementia because you can't remember, but I thought I'd forgotten. So there's tons of tapes. So that was really exciting. With, with Oasis, it was, that was more like kind of sifting for gold in the sense that I think, well, they were like what young working class kids, their lives weren't documented. They were obviously a little bit older than Coldplay. So again, they, have, we, they hadn't quite got into that era of, of people filming more video cameras being more readily available. So growing up, there's just like, there's no footage. There's a few christening photos. There's a few, you know, there's just not that much. So that's frustrating, but also amazing when you 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 know hit pay that and suddenly you find something great. And then the frustrating thing, but we kind of did it um, slightly by design. Uh, it kind of reverse engineered our way into what the story was going to be in the sense that I read a bunch of books. I started speaking to people. I knew their story a bit. Mm. And then it was like, and then we started interviewing them. So we, we had like the world's greatest podcast, which was like a seven hour thing without any footage in it. So it's like, okay, well, this is the story now, but how do we illustrate it? Mm. And then just luckily we partly through the label, partly through people who just came forward, partly through the band, we just started filling in the gaps and dropping bits in. Oh, right. We've got this photo here. We've got, that so it was that was very frustrating and then it was exciting every time we found something amazing and you'd get those calls where someone would say well look I'm actually I knew the band when I was 12 and I filmed something or you know I've got a piece of footage I've got a bit whatever it might be so I suppose yeah the, the the Oasis thing was frustrating but very but you would suddenly get very excited and suddenly you, everyone would be screaming when we found something good and new the that- whole play thing was almost like we had everything and then it was like, how the, you know, what, what do we, what's, what's the story? We're like, it was almost too much. You know, we were only dealing with kind of two years with Oasis. We're dealing with 20 years plus 
for Coldplay. Mm, I think yeah, that wasn't. I think. Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, well, we're, no, with the Coldplay thing, I think what people who don't know the band uh, forget or don't know about is, is that they are also very, very funny. And I think they're very. Like it's, I think there's a weird caricature of them. The weird caricature of both bands. Like the o- Oasis caricature through the tabloids is they're a bunch of louts. They just go in, getting in, get into rucks and and spitting at cameras, which is obviously very different from reality. And then and then people forgot about the music. And then the flip side with Coldplay is that they're very boring. They're vegans who sit and do yoga all day, and and uh, and they they're, they're really dull. <laughs> and both of those caricatures are completely. At odds with reality so when you go through the rushes and cold play it's hilarious you spend most of your time just laughing and there's it's hilarious so i i enjoyed that side of things i think it kind of reminded me how much fun it is to be in the studio with them as well hmm. how did you decide though i mean 20 years like you say how do you decide what to leave in and what to leave out i mean i know yeah, you've got a, a story but how yeah <laughs> yeah it was a nightmare i mean we could have yeah. done easily done like a mini series or or something it was really hard and we had we had really long cuts of it. And the main thing was like, how do you navigate your way around it? Because um, there's a million ways you could tell that. I mean, with Oasis, it's like we decided like almost day one, we're just going to do two years of this. That was a great idea. It all through self, I don't know how we, how we can do this otherwise. Hmm. And that's the, also, you know, the first conversation I had with Noel, who I'd never met before. And I was just, I didn't think we'd actually get to make the thing, but I just thought, well, at least I get to kind of meet him and shake his hand and have a chat. And he asked me straight out, right, so what is this film? <laughs> and I, it was his project, so I didn't know. So I was just like <laughs> winging it. But I was like, I don't know how we can really do justice to it. But in that slightly kind of, you know, the pub chat thing you always have when you're talking to mates about what's the, you know, what's the best set list of all time? What's the best first albums or whatever it might be? I was always thinking that the most interesting thing about most bands whether it's Led Zeppelin or Radiohead or whoever, is that first year or first two years as they're trying to make it. And that's the unique bit. Definitely. Once you become big, then it kind of settles into the, the kind of group. And obviously every band's different, but it's generally like, okay, you do an album, you tour it, you do an album, you tour it, you sleep with the drummer's wife, you get you get addicted to crack, then you come back together, or whatever it is, but it tends to be the same same kind of thing. Wait, who was the um, who was the crackhead in Coldplay? And I'm and who in Oasis slept with whose wife? <laughs> I'm not allowed to think what they in the film. But the um but you know, do you know what I mean? It ends up being so so totally. in that sense it was it was it was difficult with Coldplay to know what kind of bits to put in and what I ended up I mean, we had a bit of an existential crisis in the middle of the thing in that Normally, the protocol, you know, the, the process of making a film is that you have various different competing interests. So you obviously have your duty to the story in the film. Then you have the financiers who obviously want to make a good film, but they also their their main thing is like, look, I don't want to go bankrupt over this. Then you might have other producers who've got different ideas of it. On, I mean, we were lucky on Oasis where everyone was just like, just make the film you want to make. On Coldplay. Normally, you would have that competing interest of another financier, but the band just said, "Look, we will just." In the end, we had lots of people who wanted to pay for it, but the band just said, "Look, we'll we'll pay for it. Mm. Just keep going," which was great. But then there's an added pressure. It's like, well, okay, but what film are they expecting? What do they want to make? Is it the same film that that we all want to make? And so, um, uh, not that they wanted to censor anything, more that it's like they they have deep enough pockets that they could have just gone about halfway through the project and gone, actually, do you know what? We don't fancy it anymore. So that was always slightly, I hadn't really dawned on me, but then suddenly Phil 
who used to be the manager is now kind of like the creative director. He kind of, we were about halfway through and he said, like, I really need to see something because we're trying to aim for a, an almost impossible deadline at the end of this year. And I was like, um, okay, well, look, I'll, we've barely begun, but I can show you where we're at. And we're thinking about this film thematically, really, because I don't think we can just do a straight chronolo- you know, chronological cut. So what we're doing is we're doing a kind of, here's a section where it's all like about the hard times. So that's kind of, weirdly, we're doing the th- difficult third album at the same time as the, the last album, which was Ghost Stories, which is about hard times in a different way. And then we go on to another bit, which is about creativity. And we ho- Anyway, you watched it. And I think partly maybe because it maybe wasn't very good and partly because he had never seen a project like a film in that state, which is the other thing with, with people who are financing and often the execs, they're not necessarily used to how films get made. Mm. And once you start looking inside the sausage factory, it's not necessarily always that pretty. <laughs> so, they, so he was like, I think he must have, I thought, oh, he'll be all right. It's Phil, he's a mate. And I think he must have looked at it and gone, oh my God, it's garbage or something. And just, and then the next thing I'd heard from Hannah and, and Fiona, who were producing it, who were, we're, again, we're all mates, so it makes it easier and more difficult. I think it was like, he obviously was horrified and was like, well, I think we should just pull the plug on it. So, wow. so I was like, oh, shit. So I had to ring him and just get, but again, this is, it's like, it's not, you know, that we're all friends. I guess it must be in some ways a little bit like being in a band, which that, that has pros and cons. So the pro bit is that, Rather than it being like you get an email from the head of MGM saying you're fired, you just get a kind of slightly awkwardly worded email from Phil going, "Oh, do you think this is a good idea?" And it's but, but you've got to somehow got to sort it out. So I rang Phil, and also it didn't help that he was literally him and his wife were one day away from having their third baby. So I just rang and I was like, "Phil, honestly, like we paid all the money up to this point, and we now got." We're only a few weeks away from kind of getting to a kind of crucial point where, you know, we'll start figuring out what the story is. So don't worry, but like you've paid everyone for the next few months anyway. Let's just get crack on with it. We're all here and then it will get better. And don't worry, this happens in every film. And he was like, oh, well, yeah, well, it's up to you kind of thing. And then we just carried on and then it got better. And, and it also made me think, actually, what I'm trying to do is a bit too abstract and maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. Mm. And, may, and, then, and then we went, OK, well, maybe what we do is we instead of having 40 stories, we just do two stories, one of which is the arc of is, is the, the beginning, middle and end of a tour. So the most recent tour. So how it began as, a, as an album, how the, the ideas and the album came together, then the tour and then the, the end. And then along that, behind that, you have the actual, just the chronological story of how the band began and then how, where it is now. Mm. And those, the two stories is probably plenty. And then we ended up doing that and, that, and then everyone settled down, I think. But yeah, it's, did it, it's a good question. Did it put pressure on your relation? Because, so you, you've been mates with them. You, you went to uni together, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, we did. So did it put, because I think you, you've done videos for them pretty much throughout their career. But the film is a very different undertaking in a way. Did it put pressure on your relationship with them? Or do you think that because you had that relationship, it just made it easier to navigate the process? Uh, probably a bit of both, to be honest, because I think it made it harder because, I mean, it's like when we're doing the videos, they're, very, they're like the most expensive uh, home movies of all time in the sense that you turn up on a set and you might be spending potentially, you know, up to a million quid. <laughs> Or always, I can't even remember how much Adventure of Lifetime costs, but anyway, like a lot of money and a lot of their money doing it. So that's obviously a lot of pressure. But on the other hand, you also turn up in, and the kind of the elements, the, the veneer of professionalism that you normally have on a music video set 
just completely disappears in the sense that like on that same video, you turn up and you, we're play, blasting out the tune and Chris walks it and we've got a plan of sorts and we know what we're doing. And then Chris walks in and goes, oh, no, we're not doing that tune anymore. We've got another one. But all we've written is the guitar riff. <laughs> riff. <laughs> so we're like, oh, my God. Uh, okay. And so, you know, so, but, that's, but then that's quite, because we've done it enough now, I find that quite exciting because it's like, okay, we're just winging it. Fine. That's, that's Matt, it. And as long as everyone's signed up for them. Can I, can I therefore jump in and mention the first music video that you ever did for Coldplay? Because yes. <laughs> the, the exact same thing happened in the, oh, we're not doing that anymore, but the video was done. And it wasn't yeah. the luxury of having the budget back then. Wait, what? Sorry, inside. can you can you explain yeah, that clearly? You, Matt's, Matt's going to tell you the story of Bigger Stronger. Come on, Matt. Oh God! Well, it was a nightmare, but it was it was it was funny because again, so yeah, I suppose it's the flip side of when we did Adventure of a Lifetime because I'm used to it now that it wasn't stressful. It wasn't as stressful when we did our the first video was we'd been just shooting stuff like little mini films and and I'd been filming them in the just just hanging out and you know just just a bit a lot of the stuff that ends up in the film and we were mates and we'd make mini music videos all the time so we had tons of that stuff so we were used to it anyway they got signed and Chris in his usual like amazingly effusive like generous way was just like you're gonna be you're you're the only one who's ever going to do videos for us. You're doing everything. You're going to be like, oh. I was like, oh, well, great, you know. But on the other hand, I don't have any kind of track record. And when you get, if and when you get signed, it's going to be a different story. They're going to, they'll have you know people who are that's what they do for a living. It's like I'm just your mate. Anyway, when it came to the first, they'd done the EP, so there wasn't that much pressure in the sense like it wasn't their first song, it wasn't their first official single, but they wanted to do a video for it. I think Parlophone at that time. And I completely sympathise. This isn't a criticism because if I, if I was a video commissioner at Parlophone and someone said, oh, by the way, my mate's going to come and do the video, that I'd be like, no, they're not. That's not how it works. <laughs> but anyway, Chris, no, no, no. And, and also, by the way, you don't need a video for an EP. So what are you talking about? Like, just save save your money and we'll do it properly. Anyway, Chris, no, no, no. We're going to do it. It's for this song, Spies. And I, I can just imagine all the eye rolling. But anyway, so we were supposed to be doing it. And I think Parlophone just kept on saying, no, we're not. No, we're not. We don't... What are you talking about? You don't need a video. Up until about the night before the shoot. <laughs> it was like, well, look, we've arranged it now. I mean, like, we're just students. We've got, uh, we're like, start, now we're spending money. We've brought in some, we've, like, paid, we don't have cameras. We've brought some cameras in and we're doing all this stuff. Anyway, finally, like, on the night of the shoot, Chris rings and he goes, well, it looks like we're doing the video, so that's good news. But I've changed my mind. I want to do a different stuff. That's <laughs> like, uh, all right, but, but, you know, we'd worked it all out. And also... And again, this is back then, I, you know, we didn't know any better. And now, and now it's like, well, they luckily they're successful enough that it, no one needs to question them on it. But Chris still makes things in the same way in that it's a bit like, I'm trying to think of the equipment. It's a bit like his line is anyway or something. He'll throw in like four random things and you've somehow got to try and make them all gel. Mm. So he was like, I want us to be playing cricket on a beach, but actually it's got to be some water. But I want to do that. And so that's like, and then by the end of it, you've got these four things that don't make any sense. And you're like, okay, well, we'll turn that into video. And sometimes it works. On that video, it definitely didn't because no one knew what we were doing. It was a complete mess. And we were just grabbing shots. We didn't know what we were doing. We were just, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. Like, it was really fun. But it was, I was like, well, let's have a bit underwater. And we'll go and shoot that in a swimming pool around the corner. And then we'll do a bit where he'd been on this beach. He was like, well, yeah, we could shoot it there. So it was just nonsense. And it's but kind of hasn't, it's still nonsense. 
The lyrics of Spies would have fit better with the visual, <laughs> at least. Oh, God, yeah, no, completely. They actually made some like... kind of sense. Wait, so you... I don't you... know why, I was... So yeah, you... So yeah you... I just make it... <laughs> Sorry, go on. So you made a treatment for a song, and the night before they rang you up and went, actually, use that treatment, but we're going we're gonna to actually have a different song. Yeah, 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 exactly. But that <laughs> hasn't changed... So they said the last, not the last video, the last, but one, no, actually that's not true. We've done a few since then, but the, the video, the first video I did for uh, the last album for Head Full of Dreams, mm-hmm. it was the, so it was the first single, which I think for them, again, it's different for me because it's not my music, but for them is a lot of pressure. Certainly for Chris, Chris, you know, they go away for two years, sometimes longer and they beaver away in, in complete, in this bubble. And then they appear again and they've got to kind of present themselves to the world. And, and often there's quite a change of direction and there's a lot of anticipation. So I think it's a lot of stress for him to carry with. And I remember when we did this to the track, was it, was it Lovers in Japan was the first kind of big budget one I did with them. I can't mm. remember if it was the first, I think it was the first single off. I can't remember. Oh no, maybe it was the, no, it was, they'd done like a little mini yeah, release Violet of Hill Violet Hill. Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Which we also did a video for, but like a, just a tiny little alternate one. But then this was the one they were actually spending the money on. And and again, it was like just he, he I remember one point he just like we just stopped filming and he was he came over and he was like he just kind of took me aside and he was like, oh, I think this is going to be a disaster. I don't know if no one's going to like the album or this. Gonna, and that that hasn't really changed. But I think it's a lot of pressure. And so on Adventure of a Lifetime and on and then on Orphans on the on the most recent one. Again, I think it's a, it's a lot of stress. But he, he manages to internalize a lot of it. But I think it must be it's hard. So on yeah on Adventure of Lifetime we were there we were supposed to be doing him for the weekend and we turned up with Imaginarium which is Andy Serkis's company massive you know like with it, it's a big set it's that volume thing where everyone's dressed up and they've got the dots and all the cameras set up and we were blasting out him for the weekend and then Chris walked in and was like no 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 we're not doing that anymore we've got a new tune <laughs> so it hasn't changed he was like and then they'd, they'd only at that point they'd only I don't know what they'd written but he only had the guitar lick so he basically we would just had this loop. <laughs> Of the little, 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 so it was just us playing that all day, going a bit mad, just going, I don't know what we're doing. And then in the afternoon, it was like, all right, I'll give you the lyrics as well, and played a bit of the lyrics. So it was, yeah, we're completely winging it. But now, now I can't, I kind of enjoy that process now because I know that we've done it in the past and survived. Well, it keeps you on your toes. Like, oh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's, it's a collaborate. It really is a collaboration, which is nice. Mm. Who, who made you take out more footage, Oasis or Coldplay? Well, neither, well, neither actually. It's interesting because, I mean, again, this is, it's in, it's funny when you, I, I, I tend never to read reviews. I try like not to read reviews since quite early on because it's like, you know, you only believe the bad stuff. And so I don't really know what anyone else has made of any of the films, except that, of course, like my other people come in and, and tell you about the bad ones exclusively. Go, oh, by the way, someone else is slagging you off. <laughs> <laughs> The editor, uh, Paul, who I often work with, Paul Monin, he uh, rang me up in a, all in a, like, angry and in a kind of, in a rage about uh, something that had been written in The Guardian about Supersonic. God, oh, I can't believe it. He said, oh, the band censored it. Which they never did. Like, there's nothing, they watched it. So they had, I mean, there was, it was a complicated thing legally. Because obviously you've got two brothers who don't see eye to eye. So we were told that we could, we, each of them had the right to watch the film three times. Um, uh, obviously separately and offer opinions, but that we didn't have to listen to them. 
on the other hand, there is that thing of like, well, it's their lives. I want to hear what they've got to, got to say. You know, they're, they're yeah. sensible people. They're well, they've got, and actually that process was like the most nerve wracking thing that I think I've ever been through, but actually was wonderful in that neither uh, brother said what you might expect. So, oh, he can't say that about me or no way is that going in the thing. They were like, Noel's thing was much more like, look, you know, I put, I hooked you up with Johnny Marr and Johnny Depp and all these other people. Uh, you know, you could, do we not need other people in to come and talk about why the band was important? And I just said, well, I'd, at the end of the day, when we'd done this, a really amazing, one of my favourite interviews was with Johnny Marr. But I was like, at the end of the day, I feel like it should come from the out, from the inside out. Like it mm. should be about everyone who was on the tour bus rather than, like, there's another documentary, probably exactly, you know, just as good, uh, that could be done in a more traditional way, which is like, here's Bono talking about why his favourite album is definitely maybe, or something. I don't know. But we decided not to do that. So then, so I just, so that is, we kind of talked about that. That was, and he was, oh yeah, fair enough. And then he also had a comment because we were stroke, I think it was like two hours, two and a half hours or something, the first cut I showed him. And he was like, it's just too long. I was like, no, no, don't, like, we're definitely, it can't be two and a half hours anyway. No one will let us release a two and a half hour documentary. He said, no, he said, uh, no, uh, what did he say? He said, no documentary should be longer than the band's greatest hits. He's <laughs> <laughs> got a, like a, he's got a spin on everything. But his thing, he's what the funny thing about him is. Like, then I was like, isn't, isn't it a double album? Your greatest hits, anyway. But his his thing is like, um, you know, he has a theory for everything, almost like a kind of yeah, a, like a pub chat theory about everything. And he was like, no, no it's got to be shorter, which it was going to be anyway. And then he also said, but one of the last things I'd done, literally the night before showing it to him first time, he'd said this whole long thing about it wasn't about us, it was about the fans, and it was about that moment in time, and and I put that all that. In that was the end of the film, and then it, we were so long. I was like, "Oh, I'll just cut it out because that's you won't miss it if you don't know it exists." Mm. And then he was like, "But I told you all that stuff. Does not feel? I just feel like it should be in there somewhere." I was like, "No, he's right." But it wasn't. Again, that was the same as I guess with Coldplay. It wasn't. It was a collaboration. It wasn't him saying, "I am a rock star, and you will do what I say." Like quite the opposite. And the same with Liam. Liam was like, "I, t- I was like his his thing." I'm trying to think what his comments were. He just really enjoyed it, and his and he didn't really have. He was just like. Oh, I can't even remember if he, I'm trying to remember if he actually had any comments other than just like general enthusiasm for it, which was, which was great. And they watched it a couple of times each and, and that was it. They just signed off on it. But with Coldplay, yeah, there was nothing in it that they, I thought actually, to be honest, I thought it would be bad at one point because I sent over a bunch of early clips. That's how it came about. That's right. I'm rem- remembering that. I sent a bunch of clips over to, to Phil at one point. Mm-hmm. Ages ago, I think when we were in the middle of doing Supersonic, just saying, by the way, Miller's preserved all this stuff as a kind of the band archivist has just got all these old tapes, just so you know. He's like, oh, go on, go on, let's have a look. And, and I sent him over, there's a clip where, where Chris is predicting like their future success. So this kind of going, four years, we're going to be the biggest band in the world, whatever. And I sent it over to Chris, and obviously, like, they're, as we all were, they're like spotty and geeky, and they were all students. And Phil was like, oh, God, burn the tapes. That's it. This stuff can never get out. And I was like, oh, you know, fair enough. Um, so I assumed well, I we might... In in cat- Sorry, I haven't said much. That was the one... Sure. That, I'm just so here. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, um, that really stuck out for me, that comment, because the confidence yeah. they had yeah. of such like, young guys and quite geeky guys, that's really shone for me. And yeah, I thought, the best me too. That was the most sort of yeah, iconic yeah. moment for me in the whole yeah. film because to, to be a bit geeky and obviously ultra talented, to, to have that confidence 
is obviously why they made it. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah self-fulfilling, isn't it? Now, that's absolutely right. And I, so I sent it over to him and he was like, no, 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 no. This is never seen the light of day. I was like, well, fair enough. It's like, I, my life is pretty, you know, I, I mean, I, I love the life that I've, that I have. But it's pretty pedestrian. It basically involves me going to an office a lot of the time or running around with a camera or hanging out with, with family and kids. Like it's not, well, I don't hang out with Jay-Z. I don't have any kind of image to protect. Like I don't, <laughs> if my, you know, childhood photos of me get out, I don't, I'm not going to be sitting there crying at night. Whereas I think I could understand that like they they now uh, have, you know, they're all buff and go surfing with like, you know, I don't know, with ex-presidents and stuff. And it's like a very different lifestyle. So I would completely understand. I would like, yeah, okay, fair enough. I get it that you might not want that part of your lives to be common knowledge. And then the weird thing happened was like a couple of weeks later, Phil rang or emailed or something and said, um, God, you'll never guess what the weirdest thing happened. I was sitting there at my laptop just in the office laughing at those old videos and watching it. And Chris came over and was like, oh, what, what, are you, what are you laughing at? And looked at it and he was like, oh, this stuff is amazing. This is great. Maybe we should make something like Supersonic. And we were still, because they'd seen a couple of clips from the film, only because I was touring with them, doing a bit of filming with them. And they kept on saying, well, what's, what's this film you're working on? So they'd seen a couple of bits, mm. which they enjoyed. And I guess it got, got things ticking over for them. So, yeah, there was, again, there was never any self-censorship. And in that sense, you know, talking about the pros and cons of working with friends, I guess they could have just said, look, actually, this is not, you know, this is not a part of our lives we want it. But then it never came to that. We were really lucky. That's really amazing. I thought there'd have been at least one thing from both bands that they would have gone, yeah, no, that's... You were hoping. <laughs> yeah. No, there wasn't. Oh, no, that's right, because that's what I've been saying before. So about Paul Monon, the, the editor, he basically rang me uh, like completely with his knickers in his wrist about the fact, I think there's some review in The Guardian that said, oh, you can tell that this this ba- this film, Supersonic, has been, I guess, effectively like neutered by the band that they've decided they they you know they couldn't talk about the third album because that was when they all fell apart and stuff and it was like i mean that partly why i don't read reviews but i was just like well that's obviously nonsense mm. but i but also it's, it, I, I suppose it's that that thing that a lot of people don't know how things get made and the reality is with with music uh docs to make one you have to it has to be some form of collaboration if you're going to use any of the music with the band because you can't legally make a film about a band without using their with you know without their permission to use their music and so you you need it needs to be some form of collaboration the question is what kind of collaboration is it a collaboration where they're telling you that they want a sanitized version of their lives or is it a collaboration where you try and be as truthful as as you can and and make it as as, you know something together because there's a kind of weird arrogance about me in someone else's life and going right i'm going to tell you what your life means and how it and what it and what shape it is and so so i think of course, you're going to try and make it collaboration. It just shouldn't be a, a kind of neutered or sanitized one. But yeah, we never had any kind of comments in that sense. Mm. I think, you know, obviously you, you, you'd you known Chris and Coldplay for a long time. So it's a different process. I think the really impressive thing about Supersonic for me is, you know, we were there. And if you were there and you remember that two, that two years, you caught that really, really, really well. I mean, you know, when you, when you see, when you see Coily and you see Phil Smith and you see people like that in the film, that ah, the, the helicopter bit to, to Nebworth, it's just that, that whole, that two or three year period. I remember it so well. It was such yeah. a, such a mental time. And 
when when I read that Supersonic was going to be basically bookended by Nebworth and the beginning of the band and you were going to do it like that, it just immediately it made so much sense because it's like, yeah, it's true because basically after Nebworth, everybody bailed. Like, you know, the, the right. thing that it was became something totally different post-Nebworth. Yeah. Um, and that, and the... I mean, there were... There were lots of changes in the band. Totally. I, uh, minor toes is for Stefan, but I became friends of Alan White. And after I saw Supersonic, I texted him saying, well done, mate. I thought it was amazing. He goes, don't know anything about it, mate. (laughs) 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 Because, obviously, it was slightly tongue-in-cheek, but I remember living next door to him, you know, before he got shoved out of the band. At that point, he was... There were three directors of the band when Bonehead and Quigsy went, and that was Alan, Liam, and Noel. And I think Liam and Noel yeah. just got together and said, we don't really need Alan as a director, off your trot. So <laughs> in the end, it was quite a sort of, quite toxic in a way, because he'd sort of done a lot of work since the first album in keeping them all together, because it's a lot more than making the music, isn't it? Keeping a band together. Mm, yeah. And, uh, and then obviously Oasis Amazing and Alan's had a very good life out of it. But I thought it was interesting when I sent him that text and he literally didn't, didn't know. I mean, he's obviously exaggerating it, but it's all well, it's funny because I, well, it's, it's a, it's a, it was a funny one because I think again, talking about what, you know, even like your, all your decisions as a filmmaker about what kind of thing you want to try and tell, what is the story you're trying to tell? On day one, I was like, well, I want it. Obviously, Liam and Noel are crucial to want it. And, and there was no, like, it wasn't a completely foregone conclusion that they were both going to do it, in which case you, you can't do it. But then aside from them, it was like, well, what about the rest of the band? And what about the roadies? And what about the managers and so on? So we asked everyone. Uh, prob- the problem is it's such a it's such a tricky thing because it's so political now. And so there's so much you know bad blood in the past, especially with that band. So... You ask that person, they go, well, you know, so I, I met and spent time with Gwigs, who is a lovely, lovely man. And his thing was he just still had so much anger about what had happened, not with the band, but with the management. That he like, I, given the management a part of it, which they could not be. Just can't quite see him really close, but it was like, I can't quite see myself to do it. With Alan, I don't know what happened because we kept on asking, kept on asking. I was told, again, through the various layers of management and the rest of it, that he was definitely doing it. He was just busy. He was wanting to do it. And then at a certain point, he was like, no, he's not doing it. I was like, oh, okay. Now, the problem is I know from, from again, when I'm dealing with uh, agents and actors and stuff, then you bump into the actor about a week later and they're like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> After you've just definitively been turned down. There's also that layer of plausible deniability where everyone stays nice and then there's like, exactly. in the meantime, the agents go, they're like, see you in court. So I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, I, I was desperate for him and Gwigsy in it, uh, but I was told it wasn't possible. But, you know, you don't win them all. And also, they, that's the other thing. It's like, it's their lives. They do what they want with it. I haven't got any God-given right to be part of it and ask questions at all. I'm always amazed that people have generally not with Tony in that film. I was like, he's never going to talk to us, is he? He was so sweet, he didn't need any kind of guarantees. So, so I was yeah. going to say, are so unique, aren't they? Because they're all friends still, and they've gone through it, and I'm sure they've had fallouts, but they're all great friends. And Oasis had that for a period of time, from Tony McCarroll leaving, to Gwigsy yeah. and Bono leaving. But to, to, to go on for 20-plus years is a bit like the Rolling Stones, really, and the Beatles. It's like, you know, they've stayed together, and they've got through it, because they're real, real friends. Don't, um, yeah. don't... Yeah. Coldplay split their publishing four ways. Yeah, yeah right. I think they do. That's I, th- the I believe key. they do. 
Yeah, well, I think they learned that from other bands like Definitely. Uh, U2. Because I think U2 and Radiohead do that. Mm. And I think Oasis don't. Definitely don't. not. And I think, yeah, <laughs> Can and that you is, imagine? Uh, <laughs> Who? Oasis? Yeah, which are... yeah, they did for a while. Right. No, they didn't. No, they uh, didn't. But... Allegedly, hold on, hold on, hold on. Allegedly, um, when Noel did his publishing deal after Morning Glory, he gave some of the advance to the other three band members or four band members. But that's allegedly. Like, that could be absolute bollocks. It's yeah, a story I mean, that I heard second hand. I won't echo it now. <laughs> let's not well, let's not get ourselves sued no, whatever no, we do yeah well from my perspective it's interesting because I, I mean i think i'm i tend to be quite a positive person and trying to look at the the you know best sides of people but in t- terms of the connection when you start talking to different people about how it actually went down it's like yeah there's an argument for both both sides of the, the things like, i remember talking to noel about it and and again this is like part of a longer cut of the film but he was like listen while these piss heads were down at the bar every night I was upstairs with the second album. So why should I not, why should that not be recognised as something like, they are my songs. And I completely see that side of it. And then I also see the flip side of it with Coldplay, where he's like, well, you know, Chris is like, I've written something on the piano or guitar. That's part of it. But then, you know, the, the, everything else, every and, and, and the whole, and also aside from anything else on a political level, like the unity of saying, look, we're in it together. Definitely. And yeah, maybe that, the idea, so I, I see it from both, both sides. There is but that also, amazing I think, quote. Go on, go on. Sorry. Sorry, Mike. No, what I was going to say, well, Noel, Noel has a shtick of a kind of grumpy man shtick thing that he does, but the, the generosity, and, and, you know, and Liam is, by sounds things, is a very person like bought houses for his mum and the rest of it that she didn't want. No, suddenly it was like, I didn't want. She was a very happy living where she, where she lived. But she, uh, but, he, but Noel's thing of like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever, is that he bought, you know, Mark Coral a house. He's the one who, his, like he seems to be unbelievably generous. He doesn't want to know about it. So when you talk to people about it, I mean, again, I might be speaking out of turn here, but it sounded like he was doing all that stuff. And the same with Alan, for example, just bringing him in as a as a member of the band rather than it being as no, he could have been done that thing of like you're, you're a, a musician, you comes in, I pay you for it. Yeah, session jam. But he exactly. obviously saw that he wasn't that. He's he's a he's part of the band. So I think. Then I think there's a caricature of it that actually sometimes Noel, for example, plays into like yeah, yeah, fuck them. Whereas actually, he's he's much more generous. He just would hate to get caught being generous. <laughs> <laughs> Goes God for yeah, God yeah, for yeah. God forbid anybody but should know it, that Noel's got a heart. Because like, I'm a positive from a negative, but it seems to be so kind of toxic. And I saw a quote from Liam recently saying that. If it wasn't for me, Noel would still be uh, ironing the inspiral car- carpets next season because. <laughs> What's yeah. his name? <laughs> what was his? Clint Boone. Clint Boone. Yeah, still be eyeing his knickers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, but but and, and also there's a, there's an element of truth to that, which I think Noel, which is like Noel, didn't you know? I I see it with friends of mine. Like I don't have I don't have that performer gene. Like I I the idea of other people's attention on me is terrifying. Like I've kind of come to terms with it now. If I have to go and speak publicly or be on a set with lots of people staring at me, I can deal with that. But I don't like it. Whereas there's people who love it, like Liam loves it. I've got a lot of actor friends who it's almost like they don't like it when people aren't staring at them. They feel this is a kind of, and I have the opposite of that. And I think Noel's the same thing. He doesn't have that little, that gene that makes him want that attention. Maybe now he's kind of trained himself to it, but it wasn't it's natural pretty. for him. So yeah, but Liam's Liam does have it. Chat shows though. But I think he's very, he's poor on chat shows, which is really weird because he is very confident and he loves it. But 
I think he does go shy on chat shows, if I'm honest. Yeah. He's on a big act. He's a, bit, he's, he's, he's a bit awkward, Liam, it's though. Like, yeah. uh, it's just, you know, he's, he's yeah, he's, I mean, he's, it, this is going to sound super weird, but I reckon Liam's like proper shy. Like he, 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 you know, you know, that dichotomy of actors have it as well. And a lot of, a lot of front men have it where they're a bit, they're actually a bit shy. And, and it's almost like, a, I don't know what that need to, why they need to, to get out in front of people, but I don't know. It's uh yeah. Well, you know, there's the Jim Morrison thing of not, of talking to the audience for the first three gigs or whatever. I think I, I see that as well. And then, then it's, it's the extreme shyness that forces you into another bit where you're like you totally. and you go okay i have to be really out there and then i I'm suddenly feel comfortable yeah no I'm, everyone's different aren't they but i but i yeah i think there's an element of truth in that in that noel had the talent but didn't have the self-confidence in himself and then liam was like the one who actually started the band which again was one of those things that well really gwig started the band which he talked about very hilariously and, and very eloquently unfortunately in private but, you know, and then Liam came on board and then Noel came on board. So it was a very, it's very different to the version that I had in my head, having been a fan back in the day, but not, but not now really was. Mm. Debs, do you want to jump in here before I, I ask I another do. question? I do actually, but I want to take it back. So if yours is still on the same tack, I was going to go backwards a tiny bit, if that's all right. Go for it. Um, when we were talking about collaborating, and obviously most of what we just talked about was... Can you just tell us how your relationship with Michael Winterbottom's changed? Because if I get this right, you know how you said it was your first ever job uh, was with him and you'd already said you were a big fan. But wasn't your second job co-director with him? So how did that Yeah, well, I very... From... Yeah, I mean, it was very, uh, very unusual and completely down to his generosity and willingness to kind of trust in other people's abilities and stuff. I mean, it was... So I didn't go to film school, which I wanted to do, but I, but I ended up going to study at UCL, do English at UCL, only because really the, at that stage there weren't many undergraduate courses you could do. So I knew I wanted to work in film and TV, but I didn't know how. I didn't know anyone who worked in film. Um, and so I was like, and everyone was like, you know, obviously your parents go, look, go to university because that's what you're supposed to do. And I couldn't find any great courses that I wanted to do. They were all after university. So I was like, okay, well, maybe that's what I'll do anyway. And I keep on making my little films. But then I heard this job was going uh, with Marcus at this place. So I turned up and like day two, he was there. He walked into the office and was like, oh, oh yeah, who are you? Oh yeah, what is it you want to do? And obviously I was like, well, I want to be a director like you. He's like, yeah, yeah, but what can you do? What, like, what can... He was like, slow down. He was like, well, I said, I can shoot, I can edit, I write, I do, you know. He's like, oh, all right, fine. And he'd obviously kind of dock that information. And later on, so he, he was in the, just finishing a film called The Claim. And he was about to start 24 Hour pa- Party People. It was like the first film I probably worked on. And so when they were out shooting in Manchester, he was like, look, uh, do you, you come up with Paul, who was the other runner, and you guys can be shooting the second unit stuff. So he basically stuck us in with a ri- load of load of gangsters to just take us around for a couple of, for a weekend and film them waving guns about and, and doing drugs and stuff. And then, and we filmed them just doing that and then come into the Hacienda and film, you know, some st- like extra cameras on that. So that was, that was kind of trial by fire, but I really, but I loved it. And he, again, he was like, just get in there, you know, rather than it being some kind of grandiose, like I'm now anointing you and you are now a second. It was just much like, like, well, you know how to use a camera, come, come do some filming. And then they needed a trailer for it. And again, it's a small company. So I, they were like, well, just you can cut it. You know how to cut. So I cut a trailer for it. 
And um, and then off the back of that, his next film was about refugees from Afghanistan to England. And so he's like, well, you guys come out and now you're doing one of the cameras and you'll be, yeah, but you were, everyone was everything. So I was like the, I was the driver, the runner, the assistant, the, the an extra camera. I was, uh, I did costume and makeup. I, I was looking after <laughs> the kids who were filming, everything. So it was great. It, again, it, I'd never went to film school, but that basically was my film school. That's amazing. And, yeah, it was really amazing. And I went to do a little bit of editing on The Constant Gardener for a Fernando Morella's film straight after. And Michael rang up and was like, all right, I need you to come in and just cut some stuff for me. And I started cutting it and it was a loads of gig footage um, that he'd shot for a film called Nine Songs, which wasn't actually called Nine Songs and wasn't really a film at that point. It was just a bunch of stuff. And so I said, uh, so I didn't really know what it was, but I was like, well, okay, I'm, I'm putting it together. And then... He said, oh, yeah, we're also shooting this other stuff. And he was shooting all these scenes of these two people together and basically like a, you know, actually having a love story, but with sex in it. And so uh, I, at a certain uh, point after we've been cutting that for two months, I was like, well, I guess I'm an editor now officially because yeah. they're paying me and I'm editing. So it was that very was a informal. controversial film as well, wasn't it, Mark? It was, yeah, it was controversial. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. There was a spate of... If this is pre p like you know internet porn and that being a, widely available, I guess. And so I I I think there was a, a moment in time for about five years, maybe or ten years, where smaller art house filmmakers were starting to kind of experiment because like there's a weird conventions that we all have in that we all laugh at. Can you watch a Bollywood film and like when they're about to kiss, it suddenly cuts to a you know a symbolic flower or whatever. We're like this is very chaste. <laughs> silly conventions of filmmaking that we don't really understand whereas actually we're the same is true of any filmmaking that happens anywhere else on the planet it's just that we don't acknowledge it you know i mean even even funny things like you know you, you obviously you fade out and the next morning people wake and you assume what's happened or you do a flashback or you know someone walks across the room and it's a wide shot and then you cut to a close-up we all take that for granted which i think in about 50 years time or probably even sooner those things might seem quite quaint and quite antiquated. So, I, so yeah, so I think with, with sex, obviously, it's such a massive part of everyone's lives or most people's lives. And, but we're so, so kind of neurotic and chaste about it in terms of the depictions of it. And maybe that's going to change now. So I think there was this moment in time where filmmakers were going, well, maybe, isn't it bizarre that you suddenly cut to other things? And yeah, completely, of course, it's a, it's a private thing. But on the other hand, if you're going to be truthful about, if you're trying to make something that's real and truthful mm. and shying away from something that's so important to everyone, it's kind of nonsense. So yeah, so Michael started making this film, but it was it was completely experimental in that there was no script, there was no plan, didn't know what they were shooting. He'd just send stuff every day and I would start doing, like cutting it together and turning it into different scenes and, and then he'd come along and agree and disagree. So I kind of learned that way, really. And it was as we were finishing that, that these guys... Uh, famously came out of the, the three guys who were known as Tipton Three got released from Guantanamo Bay. And he was, but Michael was supposed to be going off and doing a film called Goal, which did actually get made in, uh, in the end. But um, but basically he was supposed to be making this film. And again, as I've, as we've established, I'm not a sporting fan and I was not a sport fanatic. And I was just like, not, uh, yeah, fuck. and I was going to be editing on it. And I was like, the idea of doing this for four months is not, not of my, not my dream. And I just said to him, we went out for a drink one night before we went, all went up to Newcastle. 
And we were like halfway through our first drink and he was like, yeah, this film will never happen. And we'd all packed our bags. So we were like, what are you doing? <laughs> The producers are assholes. The whole thing's falling apart. We don't have the money. It's never going to happen. Because I think he was trying to make a film. It was about a country kid who came from Mexico. And mm. then there, that was like clearly not what they had in mind. They wanted to make Rocky or something. And mm. so, uh, so yeah. So it was like, I was like, well, you should make this film about these three guys that they've been released this weekend. And it's that's, that's a proper film. That's actually about something that really means something. And so he was like, well, why don't you make it? And I was like, well, who's going to trust me with, you know, two million quid? He's like, all right, well, we'll make it together. And we were both quite drunk. So I was like, yeah, well, whatever. Yeah, okay, this is there. But, in, but his, um, his partner, Melissa, was there with me, who's a friend of mine, a childhood friend of mine. And I was like, and she was like, no, let's ring the lawyers in the morning. Don't know that we'll make it happen. And so we did. And, and at every point, I was like, 99% of other filmmakers, especially at his level, would have just been like, right, you're, you're the runner. You go off home now. So right, I'm the director. He'd been directing for, for years before. And, um, and he never did. And, he, and you know, he co-credited us and everything. And it, and he was, again, that kind of Coldplay way, it was, it was a collaboration. And we did it mm. together. And then we made another film straight afterwards called The Shock Doctrine, based on Naomi Klein's book. Mm. And it was a similar thing. You know, he rang me and was like, do you want to make this, this book with me? So it's been amazing. We're all mate, we're still mates. You know, he emailed me just now. Um, and obviously, you know, it's been a funny time because of coronavirus. But we normally all meet up every couple of months and go for a drink. No, it's been amazing, but that's testament to him. And for aspiring filmmakers, obviously, you know, you went to uni with Coldplay and you got there with Michael Winterbottom, but that's more about your character. That doesn't just happen. You've had to make that happen. Well, I was, I was very not, lucky. Yeah, well, I suppose... It's sort of luck. No. You make your own luck. That really mm. is true because mm. lots of people went to university with Coldplay. Lots of people, you know, you, you put yourself in there and made that happen. Thank you. Well, that's, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, it's it's true. I knocked on a lot of doors to before that happened. So that you get, you, I think. Uh, so I definitely, I don't. I, I meet people and I watch films of people who are clearly like kind of they're differently wired and they just have uh, this innate ability in the way you know. So that they they are amazing filmmakers. I don't really consider myself in that category, but I really, but I, what I do have is a lot of perseverance and stamina. And so I, I definitely feel like that thing of knocking on a ton of doors and the, the amount of times that people turned you away. I, I remember Oil Factory back in the day used to make all the cool music videos and they did Supergrass and Radiohead and, and all those guys. And I remember, you know, banging on their, basically stalking them, emailing them, sending them letters, never heard back. And, th- and it's never, it's very rarely malicious. I mean, that's the thing is like, it's just people are busy and that's not the system. So I then hung out and met and hung out for a long time uh, with Winifred Oil Factory, who's like literally the loveliest person on the planet and wouldn't have had a clue. You know, they just wasn't, wasn't set up for that. And it, I think similarly with it, you know, I, I basically rang every single person I could possibly do. And I, I just, by luck of the draw, my, so I, my girlfriend at the time at university, as we were finishing, her dad was a scriptwriter. And writers don't have any connections to the film, film world, but it's the reality. Definitely no one not. knows who they are. They're so badly treated. And, and so I, even though he was, and he, he also, you know, he was still writing, but he didn't have the connections he used to. He used to work with Lindsay Anderson. But he just said, well, there's an editor who, who I know. So he gave him a that editor. And then he said, oh, okay, well, there's another editor I know. And there's another, and went around the houses up until the point where someone said, oh, I think there's a film going on in East London. Here's the address. So I just turned up and just went, 
oh, by the way, can I make the tea? And they said, oh, yeah, you can make the tea for a bit, and here's a script. And then I just overheard two people in the car- in the trailer in the caravan just talking about the fact there was a job going at Michael's company. That's so what that was saying. it. And then that, mm. yeah, so you've got to, you've got to yeah. persevere. It wasn't just but it was funny because I didn't get the job. <laughs> I didn't actually get the job. I went in for the interview and they turned me down. And then, so I went away on holiday. And about four days later, apparently the person who did get the job was such a space. Um, they were so useless and ended up <laughs> on the fourth day that they were there, suddenly announced they were going off to get married because they'd met some girl and just left. So they rang me on. <laughs> They rang me on holiday and just said, oh, well, oh, you know, can you come come in tomorrow? And and I just went, yeah, all right. And I caught a plane and got back. Wow. <laughs> so, you, so, yeah, you're right. You do sometimes yeah. have to, well, yeah, no, you've yeah, got to stick your neck out. It's a lot of young filmmakers and uh, Elijah, who I've sort of brought up for the last nine years, you know, he thinks it's just going to come to him. And I keep saying, he set, they've set up companies, the Camden Collective, they're going to do that. I said, but what have you done? Mm. I said, stop, yeah, stop sure. jumping 10, you know, the... the Young people now are very self-aware, which is great, but they sort of think that it's all going to come to them. And right. they set up a company before they've got the content, before they've got the contacts. And that's what I sort of try and tell aspiring filmmakers is that you have to do it yourself. And yeah, if we listen to the first 45 minutes of this, they'll think, bloody hell, he got lucky. But you didn't. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's the point, you didn't. Yeah. Absolutely. 10 minutes yeah. of stories where you actually didn't get lucky but you kept persevering kept making it happen you must have been likable and that's the key not just writing great scripts that's the key to it for me is actually getting on with people persevering and and you know that 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 um hustle and hustle you know there's a real yeah. fine line between hustling and hustling people. <laughs> i hustled so many i hustled so many people <laughs> in every career like i remember trying to get into the music business and hassling like i was just the most annoying 17 year old on the planet and <laughs> when i when i got my agent my writing agent i immediately went and looked in my emails for the first email i'd ever sent to an agent to try and get an agent and it was like 11 years before actually getting an agent and then I just thought to myself wow you've spent 11 years like and the funny thing is that with the 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 agent thing I think I've said this before though that like everybody said to me as soon as you stop looking for an agent go out and do because one of the things that like should I write or should I try and get an agent and in the end it was like just keep writing and the moment yeah. at which I went, oh, actually, I don't need an agent. I've got like, you know, I've got like three shows in development. I'm good now. I've got an agent. So I think, <laughs> I think there's definitely there's definitely something in that. Yeah. Hey, listen, I've got a question, Matt. Have you ever had mm-hmm. and do you still have imposter syndrome? Yeah, completely. Completely. Well, yes, in the sense of, I mean, on bigger productions, I have it. I think when on because I've been doing more documentaries recently, you get used to a certain way of doing it. So you're just like, oh, okay, I kind of, I've got the hang of this now. Yeah. But the when every time I hop back onto a film set, particularly because then when we when we're doing documentaries, it's normally me, either me shooting or me with a couple of people, and it's much lower key. And so, like for example, we've been doing some filming recently. It's like four of us there, or it's me and an edit, and I'm, I'm probably most comfortable editing. And so I just, so it's, so it's easy. So there's no kind of imposter side to that. When I'm back on a, when we did the Orphans Coldplay shoot, you walk into a, like a Hollywood studio set and you're like, 
okay, there's now 50 people all stood around with a massive revolving set, which we know is costing us 10 grand a minute. And you're like, <laughs> and, then, and then someone comes over and goes, what are we doing? You're like, oh my God, no. why, why are you asking me? But actually you just get to a point going, look, it's all right. That's what it costs. Like it's nothing, you know, the fact that it's costing a lot of money is irrelevant ultimately because they've decided someone else has trusted that that's all right. And so you just need to get on with what's actually going to be on inside that frame. I went to see Christopher Nolan years ago when he'd just made insomnia giving a, doing a Q and a at the BFI. And he was saying that he was working on that film and it was his first really big step up and that he was traveling down to the set. So they stick him in a car and he's, he knows that he's going in, uh, driving all the way down there and he can see from about a mile away, all the cranes and the snow machines and then all the trailers and there's like, he drives for 20 minutes past every single trailer there. And he finally, they, he pulls up and he, they walk him into a trailer and there's Al Pacino waiting for him. <laughs> it's like, you definitely, you could get, you could lose, you lose your head over it. But actually he was like, well, it's, it's no different to when he was doing a short on his own in mm. that you've basically got a, an empty frame and you've got to fill it with something. Yeah. And that, and you, it, obviously they're trusting you for a reason. So yeah. So you definitely, yeah, I get it all the time, but then you just go, well, all you can do is is keep plugging on. And I think the one thing I've got used to the bit that uh, you don't know at the beginning, which you then realise is that you... Well, two things, I think. One is that it will be a nightmare, so don't worry about it. Like, at every level. like so you'll, you'll get a sh- You'll get a shot. You know, your dream shot might not come to fruition. You might get something better. But generally speaking, it'll be like, ah, oh, that scene that was the whole the whole film was about. Actually, you didn't didn't work out the way you expected, but maybe then there's another thing that's better. But also, there's you've got, got normally got a lot of people there to help you, and so when you don't know or you're confused, or you can just turn around and say, "Well, what do we think?" And if you if it's a good atmosphere on the set or the production, then all those people are there to bail you out, and and you and the least experienced person on every single film set is the director because they don't do it. None of us do it that often, and we've never been on anyone else's film set. Mm. So you don't know how anyone else does it. So you can, but you turn to the cameraman or the or the editor or the producer, and they'll have just come off another set twenty four hours before, and they'll go and you go. Oh, I just don't. I'm sitting here shooting two people in a bloody room, and it's really boring. And they'll be like, "Well, yeah, you could do this." <laughs> and you go, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Or when I was working on something last week, we did it this week. You know, so it's it's you don't don't be afraid to ask for help. It's the hardest thing to ever get to a film set. But once you get there, everyone's the positive spin doctors, aren't they? Everyone yeah. does everything to make it happen. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's some, something, one of the, the big things that I've learned is that as a, for me as a writer, everything is a collaboration. And the idea of compromise is almost second nature because there are so many layers before you get a film made or a TV show made that the idea that your original, this is my vision and this is my art, by the time, you know, you've had 16 sets of notes from the first lot of producers and the second lot of producers come in and then the broad, the network want to say something. Oh, you just, you, you learn the art of compromise and you learn the art of collaboration and how to, I guess, yeah, I mean, for me, that's the big thing is like focus on the work and, try and work with people who, when you feel like an imposter, they can kind of hold you up. You can kind of go to them and go, what do you think about this? I'm stuck or whatever. And if you have that collaborative spirit around you, then I think you can, um, I think you can make good work and you can conquer that, uh, 
imposter syndrome, which I, I asked because I, I still have it. I still, you know, I kind of, I swing from, I absolutely should be here because I fucking earned the right to be here to what the <laughs> hell am I doing here? How did I end up yeah. here? And I don't even know what to say right now. So, yeah, I mean, it, we But do... what are any of us doing here in anything? That's the, that's the reality. I mean, exactly. I, I was working, you know, having, having, being in a family of doctors and also I was just interviewing someone who's a doctor last week. They're in A&E and they're all winging it as well. And he was like, he, you know, I was supposed to be filming him in A&E and he pulled the plug on it and he was like... um, it's just such a shit show in there. Like we don't know what we're doing half the time and this is going wrong. And we're just having to like, we think we're being, you know, so they're all winging it. So everyone's winging it to a degree. Mm. Obviously you have an element of training and experience as you go along where you get more equipped to do it. But I'm sure, you know, you see it with the politicians we've got at the moment on both sides of the Atlantic. They're all winging it. They don't know what they're doing. Definitely. It's terrifying. But it doesn't well, I mean, seem to stop them doing their jobs. Exactly. And I think the thing is like, you know, people looking for finite answers to a, a global pandemic that, you know, people that, that didn't exist 12 months ago, you're not going to get a finite answer. The reason they look like they don't know what they're doing is because they don't know what they're doing. Because how could <laughs> anybody know what they're doing with a, with a pandemic that didn't exist 12 months ago? Um, hey, Matt, listen, mate, we could sit here and talk for another two hours, but really, <laughs> 76 minutes in, I really must wrap this up. And I believe, Leon, you have to run very quickly, don't you, lad? I do, yeah. Sorry. It's been amazing listening to Matt and... And the work he's done and how he's sort of got there. So yeah, no, it's been brilliant. Well, look, Leon, I'm going to let you run now, so you can you can get to sets if you get to, if you are indeed rushing to sets. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck, mate. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Thanks, Matt. Yes, Cheers. bye. Bye. See you later. Debs. Yes. Um, is there anything else that you want to ask him out very quickly before I completely no, wrap this up? I'm, I'm mindful of the time and you know that I could bring in so many stories and things that I already know. I feel a bit like privileged to have an insider info on quite a lot of things I could talk about. But no, I, I just think everyone should go and Google Matt's work and watch it all, basically. And thank you so much for joining us, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Delight. Thanks, Debs. Absolutely. Uh, so I love his chat to you. Nice to catch up. Yeah, and uh, happy Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas. Yeah, indeed, indeed. To everybody who listened, thank you very much. We think this might have been okay. If you liked it, give us a retweet, give us a like, give us a review. Do go to all the usual social media platforms and do all that sort of business. Um, I believe this is our last podcast of the year. We won't be back until January. Is that right, Debs? Yep, correct. First one will be back first week of January, I imagine. So in the meantime, have a lovely Christmas. Be safe. Be well. And yeah, like I said, I think this might have been okay. That's one, guys. Hey, Matt.